I hope it's been of some benefit to you the way we've approached the Gospel of Luke. Uh, my intention is not to preach every detail, but rather to preach the narrative of Luke's Gospel, meaning we take numerous scenes, sometimes even whole chapters in one swath. Not that the details aren't worth our devotion, they certainly are. Uh, but from time to time, we have to remember that the Bible is also written to be read, and we tend to not read things in a couple of sentences at a time, and so getting a feel for what, what the God was communicating through his word, what the author Luke was trying to put together um, as we read it. And so we're kind of picking it up in the middle of a bunch of teaching from Jesus. Uh, really, it stretches all the way back to chapter 9 and keeps going for a couple chapters. Um, so, so, you know, there's some connections that we'll have to make, but I hope that this has still been of, of benefit for, for you. Uh, today, Lord willing, we'll cover Luke chapter 12, verses 35 through the end of the chapter, verse 59. So let me read just uh, let me just read verses 35 through 40. Luke chapter 12 verse 35. It says stay dressed for action. This is Jesus speaking. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Would you pray with me, please? How precious, God, is your steadfast love. We take refuge in the shadow of your wings. We feast on the abundance of your house. And you give us drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life, and in you we see light. God, we pray along with the psalmist. Yes, you are the true provider of life and light and delight. And so we labor for your sake, for your glory, God, but we also look forward to receive the reward that you have promised to those who are faithful to you. Help us today, God, to be transformed by your word. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So let's make a connection to what's come before. Last week, in verses 13 through 34 of chapter 12, we talked about Jesus addresses our relationship to possessions. Remember that parable? The man who builds bigger barns for his stuff. And then, of course, God demands his soul that very night before he can build his barns and truly enjoy all the things that he's laid up for himself. And there was a a final encouragement. If you just look back at verse 32... This sort of defines how we view our things on this earth. Verse 32 of chapter 12, Jesus says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, and with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So that the good news that God has given us, the kingdom of heaven, 
It's just a gift. He gives us everything that is his and his riches. That compels us then to detach from the things of this world. Right? Because our treasure isn't here. That's the whole point. Now, someday, that treasure, you could even translate that word treasure in verse 34 as treasury, or we might think of like a treasure chest or a bank account. Someday, that treasure is going to be enjoyed. You'll open the chest. You cash out the bank account. And that is that this world will end and you will finally inherit everything that God has promised you and enjoy them living on the treasures of God for all eternity. So our passage today takes that principle of laying up treasures for yourself in heaven and then looks forward to the end that is coming, the final consummation of God's kingdom, which is signaled by one pivotal event. And that is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to this earth. So Jesus is coming. Be ready. Christians use a big word for this. We call this eschatology, which is basically describing truths that concern the end of all things. We call it eschatology. That is, uh, and our text today, what we cover in the rest of Luke 12, uh, emphasizes expectant eschatology, so in in simpler terms, that is anticipating and being ready for, being prepared for the end of all things. So, So if you look down at verse 40, what we just read, this is the key verse to everything we're going to cover today. Luke chapter 12, verse 40, you also, Jesus says, must be ready for the Son of Man, that's a reference of Jesus to himself, the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So kids, if you're listening and you want to remember one important thing from this whole sermon, it's this. Jesus is coming. Be ready. Be ready. He starts out with those commands. Verse 35, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. One of the ditches that we Christians can fall into when we look to the end is is we can think that since we know the end of the story, what we do on earth doesn't matter. Now, some Christians then will become lazy and complacent. You say, well, after all, I mean, Jesus has forgiven my sin. He's promised me eternal life. So what else do I need to do? And in this case, this person would often just wait out this life so that you can enjoy the next. To borrow from our illustration, this is to put on your pajamas and turn down the lights and go to sleep. Other Christians will become dispassionate in this world meaning that you could not care less what happens to the world around you. And you, so you say, well, you know, the world is going from bad to worse, so just let it burn. I've got Jesus. I don't need to worry about other people's problems. I'll just put on my slippers, close the blinds, and enjoy the light for myself. Still other Christians, in sort of an opposite extreme, want to rush into the world headlong, changing the world without wisdom or holiness. This is sort of like the person who shows up to a construction site in flip-flops and swim trunks, or the person who brings a spotlight to a candlelight dinner. You see how I'm twisting this illustration? It's doing more harm than good. Now, Jesus is so gracious to us, right? Because he knows that we are prone towards selfishness in all its different forms. So that's why he jostles us to say, stay dressed for action, Now, if you have a King James Bible in front of you, it uses a little bit more literal language. 
When it says, let your loins be girded about. And that describes this old practice when people wore tunics and belts, not, you know, Carhartt pants built for work. They would actually have to hike up that tunic and tuck it into the belt so that you could move freely for a task to be done. I mean, the whole point Jesus is making is that he's left us here on earth for his purposes. So keep your work clothes on. Keep your boots oiled. Keep your tools sharp. Jesus is telling us, be ready to work. Be ready to do what he has prepared for us. And then this whole business of lamps, we've heard this many times in the Gospel of Luke. Lamps are for giving light. You don't hide them under baskets. You don't put them in closets. And, and remember when we've come across those illustrations, the point is always that God has sent us in this world to bring good news to the world. Good news about Jesus, good truth of God's word, good mercy to people who are in need. So the work that he has given us is to do good to people. It very much means by keep your lamps burning. Don't let them run out of oil. Or maybe to take it into modern, modern parlance, you know, don't, don't let the charge run down to nothing. Don't let them dim. Certainly don't keep that lamp for yourself. These are really our basic marching orders as Christians on this earth. Right? Stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning. Now understand the metaphor. We're going to get to kind of the how that works out here in just due time. Jesus gets to that in our text. But it's interesting, before he tells us what that actually means for us to do, he tells us what the reward is. He looks towards the end, when he will return, and he, says, he basically tells us what's going to happen if you live this sort of life. He tells us why we should keep our work clothes on and our flashlights fully charged. He'll tell us with a story, starting in verse 36, kind of continuing, right? And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Now, this is picturing servants who are busy preparing for the return of the master, not knowing when he's going to come, so that when, as soon as he knocks on the door, they can open it up with gladness and welcome him home. Now, clearly, in this metaphor, the master represents Jesus, and the servants are us. This is why I call this expectant eschatology. Knowing that Jesus is coming back, we live our lives eagerly awaiting his return by doing the work that he has left us to do. What happens when he returns? Verse 37. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he, and that's the master, the master will dress himself for service and have them, the servants, recline at the table and he will come and serve them. Now that is not how things are supposed to work. Master comes home in the middle of the night from a long feast and he's supposed to sit down at the table while his servants busy around him serving his very needs. But not King Jesus. Not King Jesus. Matter of fact, this master is delighted on his return to sit us at his table, to feed us of his abundance, to lavish us with his love. The master serves the servants. That is the reward of Christ's return. And if he comes, verse 38 says, in the second or the third watch, second watch or the third, and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. Now that, that language of second and third watch, uh, either the, the Jews would often divide the night into three watches, the, the Romans four, so basically this is the wee hours of the morning. That's all you really need to worry about. 
Even if it's really early in the morning, even if it's a long time before Jesus comes back, be ready. Blessed are those servants who are awake when he comes. Jesus is saying that that our life lived for him until he returns is worth it. Living a life of, of expectancy, of anticipation of the end is worth it. Now he tells us this because it's likely to be hard. Difficult, long, tiring, like staying up into the middle of the night. Which we should expect, right? When you put your work clothes on, you expect to be sweaty and dirty and tired, yet productive, like the whole point. Jesus promises us happiness, blessedness at our end because our labor on this world will not be in vain. It might be a long time before Jesus returns. It's been 2,000 years already. So, you know, it shouldn't surprise us if it takes a little while longer. It may be thousands more. It might be tomorrow. You don't know. The point is, is that you ought to be busy with the things that God has given you to do so that when Jesus returns, you were ready for him. Now, verse 39 throws an interesting little truth in here. Know this, Jesus says, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. Now, our English language is not always so friendly because what Jesus means by master here in verse 39, he does not, it's not the same master of the previous verses. It's an entirely different Greek, Greek word. He shifts the metaphor a little bit. Here, the master of the house is, is more like a manager. In previous, it was more like the Lord. And, and the point, though, is, is that thieves don't notify their victims. Right? They come when it's unexpected. And that's why a wise household manager would, would make proper preparations like locking the doors and setting the guards and, and these sorts of things, keeping lamps burning. And, and Jesus is taking that truth that a thief comes unexpectedly and he's using it in a positive way by saying, verse 40, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Again, Jesus is coming and you must be ready. Now, I'm not going to take time today to show you the abundance of biblical witness that Jesus is in fact going to return to this earth in a body, in glory, someday in the future. That witness is abundant, okay? But those events will arrive unexpectedly. We even covered this this morning in in Sunday school. This came up. You don't know the day, the month, the year. Nobody does. Predictions are useless. They're useless. The point is, though, that many who are consumed with this world, remember back to what we studied last week, anxious about the things of this world, they're the ones who will be really surprised when the judge of their souls arrives. Remember the man who built bigger barns and told his soul that he could sit back, relax, and enjoy the things that he has, and he doesn't know, Jesus says, that that very night his soul would be required of him. This is what Jesus means by the unexpected return of Christ. Not just that it will come at a surprising time, but that many on earth will be very surprised when he comes. But Christians, he expects us to be ready. Not ready in the sense that we figured out when on the calendar he's going to arrive, but ready in the sense that we should be working until he returns, until the Lord returns, We, and listen to all these commands we've we've picked up, stray dressed for action. We keep our lamps burning. We wait for the master. We be ready. 
And if, I think if you want to reach back into what we studied last week in Luke chapter 12, it makes very much sense that he's telling us how in this life we can lay up our treasures in heaven. This is all connected. How do we do that? What does it take to be ready to lay up our treasures in, in heaven? I'm going to give you just a brief definition that will kind of unpack this in different ways. But here's, here's what I think this means. It means that everything in your life is being subjected to the Lord Jesus Christ. So to, to be ready to lay up your treasures in heaven is to take everything in your life and systematically, progressively, always, continuously submit it to Jesus and say, Jesus is going to be Lord over this and Jesus is going to be Lord over this and Jesus is going to be Lord over this and then you take whatever actions you need to take to make that so. That's part of it. It's, it's you subjecting everything under the Lord Jesus and, this is an important and, helping other people to do the same. It's not all about you. Okay, so how do we do that? Part of this concerns your faith. What you actually believe to be true. It also concerns your perspective. How you view the world and the events and, and, and eternity. So being ready, we might say, is a matter of the mind and of the heart. It's very internal. Which is why you have to think about this. Think about the things that you will do. What you will prioritize. And, and even think, like, how are you going to align your actions with what you believe? Takes thought. Takes, takes faith. How will you direct your life on earth towards your hope in heaven? And I think that comes with the warning, we studied this mostly last week, that many things will threaten to take away your time, your energy, your work. There are many things on earth to be anxious about. So we have to live reminding ourselves of what's most important. That's, that's, what, that's this change of perspective that says I'm going to lay up treasures in heaven and not on this earth. It's to understand what's most important. So, for example, it matters very much who wins the elections that are happening this week in our country. It matters. It matters more where each of those people on the ballot spends eternity. It's just difference, right? It matters that you make provisions in your life for your later years it matters far more that you prepare for life after death. You see the difference? We're not saying that the things of this earth don't matter. It's not Jesus' point at all. Rather, he is telling us there are more important things, though. And we have to get that straight. As Christians, we do the work of the Lord when we understand which things are most important and we prioritize those and then everything else needs to follow after. So, so that's why I say that there's work that needs to be done in being ready, that happens in your mind and in your heart. It, it's, and it's an ongoing work as Christians. It's something that we grow into. It's something that we are continually learning. So pick it up now in verse 41, where Peter says, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? Now, now think about that question for a moment. 
this whole business of the master returning and rewarding the servants? Is this for disciples of Jesus or is this for everybody? Now, if it was for all, for everybody, then the command, be ready, would basically mean believe in Jesus, right? Believe what Jesus is saying. And if that's the case, then Peter and the disciples and us, we say, hey, we're covered. Like, we've got this, we got this under control. We've believed in Jesus. We're done. So if that's what Jesus is saying, then this is simply a message about faith. Have faith in Jesus, and he'll reward you in the end. That, that could be it. But Jesus' answer reveals that no, no, this parable is not for everybody. He's telling disciples particularly about what we ought to be doing and the dangers that we would face. He's telling us that we have to continually stay dressed for action and keep our lamps burning. This is an ongoing process. So listen to what he says in verse 42. The Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? This is Jesus' whole goal for us. Like, in in telling us that someday he's going to return, we need to be ready, we need to be about the work that he has given us to do, and he's saying, be a faithful and wise manager. This is basically the instruction. That should be your goal, Christians. Faithfulness and wisdom. So when you think about, like, what are you aiming at in your life? What, how, how are you shaping your life to be subjected to the Lord Jesus and to help others to also submit all things to Christ? What is it that guides your choices and your goals? It's faithfulness and wisdom. As God's workers, we want to do the right work the right way. Notice that Jesus, in this this passage, refers to us as managers. Who is the, verse 42, the faithful and wise manager? So just be really clear. God is the master. He owns the house. He's saying, we're the managers. Which means God has entrusted many things to you as a stewardship. It's a stewardship. Something that you need to take care of for his sake. You have, as we've prayed from Ephesians 2 a couple times... You have work to do from God. It's good work. He's prepared it for you. So you should think about what has God entrusted to you? What's your stewardship? Generally speaking, you have a body and a soul. You're responsible to manage those. God's entrusted you with time and skills, possessions and money. God has entrusted to you people family, like parents, children, neighbors, friends. Like You start thinking about all the things that God has intentionally put in your life, and there's quite a bit which we have a stewardship towards. All of these things we strive to subject to the promises of God and the commands of God's word. Now, some of you have considerable responsibility, and others have less We have different responsibilities. We have different stewardships. It's not about comparing how much has God entrusted you compared to how much God has entrusted you. Rather, Jesus says the goal is faithfulness. It's faithfulness with everything that God has entrusted to you. Faithfulness is staying the course. Which means both positive action towards the things that God has given you and avoiding things that will distract you or deter you from the task. Jesus also says this should be done with wisdom. Wisdom is the ever-growing application of knowledge and skill. Those those two two really go hand in hand. So apply those to what God has entrusted to you. 
This is the work that Jesus says be ready for. You might even start with whatever's most demanding in your life. Everybody probably has one or two things that are demanding the most of your thought and energy and time. Whether that's children or your health or your, your job, your vocation. Maybe it's thinking about the future and what's coming next. God has given you a stewardship. So the goal then is to subject these things to the lordship of Jesus. Say, okay, Jesus, rule over my life. Rule over me and my children. Rule over my work. And then with a persistent prayer and an open Bible, you're asking God, how can I be faithful and wise in this task? Now you should know by now you should not do that alone. You need to seek counsel of others, other godly people who can help you. Maybe there is something in your life where you're acknowledging, I need to get this part of my life under the lordship of Jesus, and it's not, so I need help, right? Maybe just take time today before you leave to ask someone to pray for you to have wisdom and faithfulness in your current circumstances. And then here's the most practical part of all this. Do it. This is the most practical part of being ready, is doing what God has given you to do. Pick it up again in verse 42 and see this connection. Jesus asks a really long question. The Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? So he's saying, you know, who's, who's this manager that Jesus would set, you know, the picture of a, of a master with servants. He's saying, who's kind of the chief servant who's going to care for all the whole household, make sure everybody gets their food? Who's faithful and wise at that? Here's the answer, verse 43. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. Who's the faithful and wise manager that's supposed to feed the servants? It's the one that feeds the servants. It's not complicated. Jesus is giving a picture of a master saying, hey, your job for the next week is to make sure that everybody eats breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Who's the servant that Jesus is pleased with? It's not the guy that the master comes back and says, guess what I did? I painted the house. No, no. Jesus said, feed the servants. Just do what he gave you to do. The faithful and wise manager is the one that does what the master tells him to do. And and I hope this is encouraging to you, Christians. Simple obedience within the stewardship that God has entrusted to you is the path to blessedness to happiness, to knowing the pleasure of God. There's this other parable that Jesus tells right at the end. He says to the servant who has done what he entrusted him to do, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. We often latch onto that phrase. We say, man, I want to hear that when I die. I want to hear that when I stand before Jesus. Well done, good and faithful servant. Well, how do you get there? It's not by seeing what God has given you to do and then just going the extra mile. It's doing what God has given you to do. Just simple, simple obedience within the stewardship that God has entrusted to you. So Christians, be faithful with who God has made you and with what God has given you. I think often then we we rob ourselves of joy that God holds out for us when we lament the things that we don't have and the people we are not. So you might, you might put yourself down because you know what? You're not sharing the gospel with as many people as you should be, as if there was a number. Stop worrying about the number. Like, if God entrusts you with a few people, be faithful with a few. 
Other people will feel useless to God because you say, well, I don't have training. I don't have experience. I'm not good at certain things. Like, don't forget, it is the Holy Spirit that empowers us to do good in Jesus' name to others. It is not about your training and your skill, as beneficial as those could be. It's about being faithful with what God has given you, not what he hasn't. Other people will feel like, as a Christian, that you're missing out on something because you're not married, or maybe you've wasted many years of your life in, in immorality and unbelief, or maybe you say, well, I'm, I'm really busy with these things over here. I just can't devote much time to this other stuff that I feel like I should be doing. Like, whatever it is, you need to see your history, your singleness, your demanding work, your aging body and mind, whatever it is, Not as hindrances to what you might do for God, but rather as stewardship from God. That he has given to you to be faithful with. Faithful and wise. That's what God wants from us. Right? Not going above and beyond. Not going out and trying to seek out a different life than the one that God has given you. God has given you lots of things. Be faithful with them. You know, God might change your circumstance. That, that certainly could be true. But don't worry about that. Worry about what he has given you and who he has made you. And then roll up your sleeves. Right? Turn up the lights. Get to work. That's, that's the whole point. Be busy with what God has given you until Jesus comes knocking. That is a life that God rewards. You notice what he does for the servant there in verse 44? Sets him over all of his possessions. There's there's an escalation here, a reward here. That's the happy welcome into the kingdom of heaven. Not that God says, wow, I didn't expect you to do all that extra stuff for me. God said, good, what I gave you, you were faithful with. Thank you, good job, here's your reward. Okay, that's the positive side of being ready. This This is what we want to strive for and work towards and learn and grow in. And I say these are continual commands, not to say like for you to walk out of here going, oh man, I've done such a terrible job with my life. No, no, no. It's so that you would say, you know what I want to do? I just want to take one other area of my life and submit that to Lord Jesus. And then the next area of my life, I'm going to submit that to Lord Jesus. Until continually for the rest of your life, he is reigning and ruling over you and filling you with his blessings. So that's the positive side. The rest of our passage deals with the negative. There's warnings here. It's all this good commending you to go and do and be ready and work and labor. Guess what? There's there's some dangers with this. The first warning is that we beware of being foolish and unfaithful servants. So verse 45, but, remember Jesus said, who is the faithful and wise servant? Then he tells us the one who does what he's supposed to do. But, in contrast, right, if that servant says to himself, my master's delayed in coming. And then he begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. At the 
big, big picture level, if you profess to be a Christian and then live as if Jesus is never coming back, you're not a Christian. It's just as simple as that. Now, again, that's big picture. That's the final evaluation of your life. We all have seasons of immaturity. We all have room to grow. We all need to learn faithfulness. But this is the warning for the person who says, oh yeah, Jesus is my Lord. And then they spend their lives in in self-indulgent immorality. Or this is the person that says, Jesus is my Lord, but I'm not helping people submit their lives to Christ. I'm helping, I'm, I'm hurting people. I'm harming people. Jesus is once again confronting selfishness. He's confronting the person that professes with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, but then lives their lives as if he is not. And for that person, when Jesus comes back, they are unfaithful fools. It's not a slap on the wrist that Jesus gives us. This is why it's such a warning. He cuts this servant in pieces and throws him with the unfaithful. This is a severe warning. God has entrusted to you great things. Even if in your mind they seem very small, they are very great. He has entrusted to you people made in the image of God, made to know God. And he's told you to go out and make him know. He's entrusted to you a life and a labor on this earth that will bring him glory. These are not small things. It's a big deal if you don't do what God gave you to do. It's an even bigger deal if you do it or if you don't do it in Jesus' name. The condemnation here is, is not for the ignorant person who lives their life in selfish immorality because they don't know better. That person receives a light beating, Jesus says. This is for the person who knows what God has given you, who knows what God has commanded you, who even says that they're submitted to Jesus as Lord and then doesn't do it. To those who have been given much, entrusted much, much will be required. So Christians, don't grow complacent in your life. Don't let selfishness in. Beware, as we studied last week, of greed and covetousness. These are the enemies of your soul. All right, that's the first big warning. The second warning comes to the faithful. It comes to those who are pursuing faithfulness and wisdom. And it's a warning of the cost. This comes in verse 49. Jesus said, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on in one house, there will be five divided, three against two, two against three. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and her daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. That's the fire that's coming to this earth. Division, strife, difficulty. Now, did Jesus come to this earth to bring peace? Amen. Yes, he did. The greatest peace that we've ever known, right? The peace that we would have with God. But now he's talking about the cost of that peace. As Christians, 
He didn't come to just make everybody hold hands around the earth and sing kumbaya. Right? In following Jesus, there will be difficulty and persecution. This is why Jesus looks forward to what's happening to him. He says, I've got a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. This is not the kind of baptism we celebrate. You might be a little nervous to stand in front of everybody and give your testimony and be put in the water, but we will celebrate and have barbecue afterwards. No, no, this is a violent washing in the wrath of God. Jesus is looking to his death and resurrection. He calls that a baptism. He's in distress because he knows that the result of the cross will be both glorious and terrible. It will be glorious because through Jesus' death and resurrection, he will purchase a people for himself. He'll cleanse us of our sins. He'll, He'll reconcile us to God as a free gift of his grace. But the cross will be equally terrible because the death of Jesus will set this world on fire, and it has happened. Hostility, persecution, division. If you're looking for a day where Jesus and Christians will be popular, like you're, you're fooling yourself. Can you imagine becoming a Christian and your family hating you for it? Some of you have experienced that. Your friends abandoning you. Your neighbors threatening to kill you. I think today was supposed to be the day of prayer for the persecuted church. I don't know if anybody follows that kind of stuff. I just saw an email about it. Why why would we pray for the persecuted church? Why why do we ever get calendars that lead us to to pray for all these people around the world who suffer? Because, Because there are churches that are meeting in secret today. There are pastors being killed today. Like we praise God for the, the freedom and the comfort and the peace that we have. It's a good gift. But you realize that, that faithfulness to Jesus may be very difficult in the worst ways. Jesus then gives this picture, right, of a family being divided on account of Christ. That's not what Jesus came for. He did come to bring peace between us and God. The problem is there are many enemies of Jesus in this world who when God brings peace to you, Peace between you and God, it lights a fire in your world. So this is a warning, right? We talk about the rewards, the faithfulness, the pleasure of God. It's a warning that it comes at a cost. What's going to sustain you in the midst of that? It's the promised joy of the kingdom. It's that we hold tight to the reward that is coming when the master returns that may not come any sooner. Just go back to verse 37. This is what we, we hang on to. Servants, Sorry, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve him. Like, that's what we hold on to. That's why at the beginning of my, my sermon I prayed, a, I prayed from Psalm 36, right? That the children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of God's wings. They feast on the abundance of his house and you give them drink from the river of your delights. What keeps you through the difficulty of following Jesus is the promise of the eternal delight of God. But be warned, it's hard. The final warning is the one that extends to the whole world. And it's a warning to take action before the Lord comes. So Luke chapter 12, verse 54. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud... Rising in the west, 
you say at once, a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be a scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky, but why do you, why do you, know, no, sorry, why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Now focus on the two questions that are right there in verses 56 and 57. This captures the, the, what, what Jesus is getting at. Why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? Now, the, the interpretation of the present time is clear. Remember back to Luke 11, when Jesus was accused of casting out demons by the prince of demons? And, and Jesus basically makes the argument that the abundance of his work is the indisputable evidence that his power comes from God. Luke eleven twenty 20, he says, But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out de- demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And remember, that's a whole indictment of his generation, for their inability to recognize that Jesus was in fact God with them. The problem was for those people, Jesus' miracles and his teaching were not enough. And these were smart people. I mean, they learned how to read the weather by paying attention, by making keen observations. These These were not unintelligent people. Jesus is saying, you've got to open your eyes and look around. And so it remains. Many intelligent people fail to discern what is wrong with this world. They also fail to discern that Jesus is the only solution and that God who stands as the judge of the world is also the savior of those who have faith in Christ. This is why God tells us to keep our lamps burning. We have to do the hard work of helping people see That's the work that Jesus has called us to. We tell other people about that Jesus came to this earth and that he's coming back. That we all stand guilty in our sin and that that God in his grace sent Jesus to die for us. To remove our guilt and to give us eternal life. That's a hard message though for people to hear. But people can't see it if they don't know it. It's an urgent message. It's an urgent message that people need to settle with God before they face him as a judge. Jesus uses that really simple principle. It's a whole lot better to settle outside of court than to go to court and get ran through the process. This is is an urgent message to the people around him that they need to settle with God before they face him as a judge. Which is part of our work, Christians. We call people to judge what is right. That is to see their great need, to see Jesus as a great Savior, and then to run and settle with God before it's too late. Now, it could be some of you dragging your feet about putting your faith in Jesus. Maybe living a life that you know Jesus is displeased with. You have to hear that urgency. Jesus could return to this earth before I finish this sentence. He could return before tomorrow. Your life may be over by Monday morning. That's true for all of us. The urgency of the message is settle with God now while you still have time. That's a warning to the whole world. Jesus is coming. We need to be ready. Now, if you're not a Christian, that means you need to call out to God in confession of your sin, putting your faith in Jesus' death and resurrection. 
to give you new and eternal life. Christians, this means being ready to do and doing all that God has given us to do. It's the continuous pursuit of faithfulness and wisdom with everything God has given us. It's a daily choice of trusting that God has made you who he made you. He saved you for his purposes. He loves you and he will provide everything you need to be faithful and wise. Just trust him. Obey him. Follow him. And on top of that, he's going to meet you, meet your effort with unexpected joy. We labor as Christians, not, not because we're trying to earn something from God, but because in Jesus, God has already given us the kingdom of heaven. We labor for the joy of our master, right? So that he would be delighted in his work, so that he would be glorified. And what's amazing is Jesus promises when he comes, his joy overflows to us. He sits us at his table and he serves us. And doing his work on earth, it can be tiring, it can be costly, it can be painful. The master has promised us rest and reward and refreshment. Just stay dressed for action. Keep your lance burning. Be ready. Jesus is coming at an hour we do not expect. But Christians, you do not need to be surprised. Let's pray. God, I do ask for your grace in this. Sometimes it's hard to do what you've entrusted to us. And so we're tempted then to go look for something different. So God, give us a trust that the life that you've given us is the life that you've given us. And you don't make mistakes. You know exactly what you're doing. So help us to be faithful and wise people. God, if you entrust to us very little, we will be faithful and little. If you entrust to us very much, help us be faithful with much. God, we want to do all things for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.